This is chapter 81 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, a new thriller from bestseller Tana French explores luck and what happens when it runs out. We dive into the dark side of the internet and we give a forgotten silent film actress her due. In her new standalone thriller, The Witch Elm, Tana French plays with an idea that's long fascinated her. What happens when a lucky person's run of good luck ends? Nothing good, I'm sure. She chatted with our Pat Farnack. Would it be fair to say that your main character in The Witch Elm, Toby, has led a charmed life? Everything is very peachy until one night. One night, it all goes very wrong. Yes, he's definitely led a charmed life. This was kind of what I was thinking a lot about with luck and what it does to us. And Toby's somebody who's been lucky all the way his whole life. He's been on the right side of every coin flip. He's basically playing life on the easiest difficulty setting. He's good-looking. He's from a well-off, stable, loving family. He's male. He's straight. He's intelligent physically and mentally healthy, he's always had everything going for him. Life has always, luck has always gone his way. And so when it doesn't go his way one day, when burglars break into his apartment and beat him very badly and leave him for dead and leave him with a brain injury that has lasting effects and post-traumatic stress disorder, um, he's not ready in any way for what the world turns out to be from a less lucky perspective. He's not ready for the experience of of being vulnerable. And it changes his sense of not only himself, but of the reality around him. He is really very badly beaten with that head injury, and he just can't believe that it has happened to him. Yeah, absolutely. That was something that I'd been thinking about a lot before I wrote the book, was what what luck can do to empathy, how it can stunt empathy and make it harder for us to to believe in other realities. If we've been too lucky in, in one area of life, it can be quite hard to believe that other people who haven't been that lucky are experiencing the world differently and that their experience is as real as ours. And Toby's never really thought much about any of that. He's mm. just kind of a happy-go-lucky guy who's bounced along through life, never having to think too deeply about meaningful stuff. And so when all of a sudden he's plunged into a different reality, he is horrified, he's outraged, and it's very terrifying for him as well. Because the the source of all this this trauma and fresh vulnerability and all this terror isn't something that he can ever escape. It's not something that he can find a way to fight or get away from. It's within himself. The danger is him. Tana, have you written Toby as a a good guy, a clueless guy? How did you construct his character? Well, that's kind of the question is, is Mm. what constitutes goodness or badness? I very deliberately did not want Toby to be a nasty guy. He is not a jerk. He's not selfish. He's, there's no meanness in him. He is not the kind of person who would deliberately do anything cruel or nasty to anyone ever. But what he comes to question over the course of the book is, does that necess- is that necessarily enough? The fact that he would never do anything nasty to anyone. And has he really been aware of what constitutes being cruel to somebody or was he because he was kind of blinkered by his own lack of empathy was he failing to realize that the things he did could have impacts on other people that he had never even imagined so i'm hoping that it's that it's more complicated than is he good or is he just clueless Mm -hmm. he's never somebody who's been evil or cruel in any way but what impact has he had 
within other people's worlds. Since this is a ton of French story, uh, there is, of course, a stunning murder mystery. And, and it happens <laughs> when, a, when a body is found in the witch elm, which is in the garden behind the family compound. It was sort of family compound, right? The Ivy House? Yeah. The Ivy House is the scene, or it was the scene, of so many adolescent parties. And Toby and his cousins have to go back in time to remember those parties because of what happens. Yes, that skull, when it surfaces, kind of prompts a re-examination of everything that his past has been. Because to him, the Ivy House has been this lovely family haven where he played with his cousins when he was little and they had picnics and they got older and had parties and he had his first kiss there. And everything for him was very idyllic. But when that skull resurfaces and they're forced to go back and re-examine a lot of their teenage years, he, that idol starts to crumble and he stops being able to believe that it was ever quite so simple. So at a point when already his sense of himself is fragile and under attack, his sense of his past comes under the same kind of attack and he's not really able to hold on to that either. Without giving anything away, were you going for that Nobody gets out of this life unscathed, or uh, not specifically, not deliberately. Anyway, mm. um, I, I'm not really very into the idea of the, the the moral or the comeuppance. I was more interested in the effect on somebody who's always been in a position of strength within the world. What it would do to him when he's suddenly no longer in that position? Because we've all had that moment in life when you suddenly realize with with horror and outrage that somebody else in a position of power is treating you like you're subhuman, like you only Mm. exist for their purposes. And it's a horrifying moment. And I wondered what that would do to somebody who is coming at this with no warning. I mean, most of us have a certain level of warning that in some ways we are vulnerable within the world. But Toby has had no warning at all. So that was what interested me was how this effect would be intensified when it's on somebody who has never had any inkling that he could be vulnerable and how that would shift his sense of himself and his empathy towards other people, which he's never really had to develop. So it's kind of less a moral thing than an interest in the psychological impact. Is there any interest there has to be, I would think, in making The Witch Elm into a movie? Haven't heard of anything so far. (laughs) You will, I'm sure. (laughs) What are you working on now? Uh, I'm just starting the next one, and it's so vague and um, nebulous that I don't really have anything that I can put into words about it. (sighs) Um, It's not the Dublin Murder Squad, but I'm not, I don't think I'm finished with the Dublin Murder Squad. I just think, I think um, when you've been writing the same genre for a while, there's a dangerous temptation to fall into writing the same book over and over just because the framework is, is pretty fixed. It's A kills B and C finds out who did it. <laughs> and I think it can be the quite easy, especially if you're writing in a world like the Dublin Murder Squad world mm. where you already have a lot of the parameters in place. Mm. It can be easy to slide into writing the same book. So I think it, um, the next one isn't Dublin Murder Squad either. I think take a step back and come back at it with, a, with fresh eyes. So another standalone book? Yeah. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, best of everything to you. And uh, good luck with The Witch Elm. It was a fascinating read. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. 
Bite, that's B-Y-T-E, is a new thriller from former intelligence officer Eric C. Anderson, and it shines a light on the darker corners of the World Wide Web and how a technology we all welcome into our daily lives and are really addicted to can be used for evil. I asked him how close we are to the scary world depicted in his book and what we can do to protect ourselves. The cyber world runs amok in your book, Byte. Why don't you first tell us a little bit about the book and the story itself? What we're trying to do with Byte is explain to people that the the cyber construct that we live within today and take for granted has a incipient side. And it isn't just the ability to steal your identity or walk off with your cash. It's the ability to manipulate information and to change the political dynamic. And in this case, what we're looking at is an opportunity for our antagonist to change the outcome of a forthcoming Russian election. Not picking on the United States this time, we're looking at Moscow. And so cyber walk or a bite walks you into the argument that takes place between our antagonists and our protagonist. And our protagonist, by the way, for those of you who are thinking that I'm just writing a book about men, is an African-American woman who's confined to a wheelchair uh, and is a cyber genius. And so you have a a protagonist who's a woman and your antagonist is also a woman. She's an Indian uh, who has graduated with a top-notch degree from the Indian Institute of Technology and has been dragged into the world of changing other people's opinions. Was that intentional on your part to have your antagonist and your protagonist be women in a world that really a lot of times is just dominated by men? Absolutely. I I'm, I I've pressed my daughter into the world of going to chase cyber. Uh, I said, you know, this is something that is going to be a growing domain. Uh, my daughter is African-American. I adopted her when she was a day old. Uh, and the antagonist is modeled after, and I always hate to admit this, but my sister-in-law, who is uh, Indian from Mumbai, uh, who works for Microsoft. Uh, and so I have two characters who I can model off of and, and go, here. here's something to think about as opposed to the traditional men playing with men. And the world that you paint in this book is pretty scary in terms of how computers, which we all take for granted and we all have everywhere, can be manipulated to do evil. How close are we to this reality? Uh, you're far closer than you think. Uh, with the adoption of Bitcoin and other s- cryptocurrencies, we've gone to this, what the banks are even adopting now with the blockchain uh, transaction process that is susceptible, regardless of what somebody will tell you, to being hacked. And we we are living that reality today. Uh, And a fair number of people with a lot of cash have tried to stow it in cryptocurrency because you can move it from place to place without having to go through the banking processes, the paperwork uh, analysis that's associated, and the transaction reporting requirements that are associated with doing this. And so we're there. Uh, And what I like to tell people is that The next conflict that we have won't be about breaking things. It'll be about turning them off or changing the dialogue that's going on within them. Uh, And and you're seeing that with the debate that's taking place around the 2016 election and what the Russians did with that. And now you've heard the president of the United States say, look, the Chinese are manipulating our election process. And part of that is changing the information, not stealing it. Are we ready for that? We're not ready for that. Uh, the The honest truth is that I, I was just reading, I was coming up on the train and I'm reading the National uh, Cryptology or Crypto Security Strategy. It just released this month. And there is a realization within this, re- this administration, like them or not, that what they're doing is 
having to look forward to where people are going to try to manipulate the process and how they can respond in kind. And so we're looking at that as a here's here's a, a national priority. The problem with the cyber world is that you can be as proactive as you want, but the advantage always goes to the attacker because they're they're developing new tools, as they'll tell you at Facebook, if not daily, hourly. Right. And so keeping up is almost impossible. It's interesting, too, because you, you make note of it in the book that this kind of hacking is still very much human-driven and that it's not really something that AI is – like everybody's worried about AI and what that's going to mean, but we really still have to worry about the people behind the computers when it comes to this, right? You you, you need a human in the loop at some point because you, you want to direct the machine in – the place where it should be as opposed to allowing the machine to make its own decisions. We're, we're not at the point where the machines are smart enough to do that, except with the technology world. And by that, I mean the, the manufacturer of small bits and pieces. So somewhere in there, there's going to be a person in the loop, a man or woman, it doesn't matter, but there's going to be a person in the loop. And there's going to be someone who's telling that person in the loop what they should be doing. And we're, we're reaching the point where you can write the, the correct uh, algorithm, but you have to tell it where to go. Uh, the machines don't know that yet. Uh, and so this is where we have the connection between the two. There, there, I think there will always be a nexus between the human and the machine. I think we should backtrack a little bit and kind of let people know where you're coming to this from. You're an ex-intelligence agent. And is this something that you dealt with in your career, or is it just something that's really picked up in the last couple of decades? Uh, l let me help people with to sort of understand my background. I started as a programmer back in 1980. I'm old. Uh, and I started on an Apple II. And then I was a SAS programmer, a statistical analysis program that, that people ran. I started working from my house on a 1500 baud modem. I, I, this is impossible for people to imagine because you had one line that came across very slowly. It was watching it come. You never saw pictures uh, in 1986. Uh, and so... I, I was sort of intimately plugged into the, the, the world of the, the cyber processes as they developed and came forward and, and jumped in the Internet very early. Uh, yes, my intelligence career certainly helped doing that. Uh, I was a career Air Force intelligence officer, and then I went to work for the, the director of national intelligence and then finally the CIA. Uh, and my work there was introducing analysts within the system to understand what the cyber world was going to and what the threat was associated in that world. And I heard something really interesting today. There's some, it was a news story where people were talking about the dark net, which, you know, we read your book, we learn about it. And if you read some political espionage thrillers, you kind of have an idea. But the, the point I took away from this story is that the reporter himself and a couple other people said they didn't even know that this existed. Is that really one of the problems we're facing in terms of battling this the you know we had a, I had an interesting discussion last night with one of the reporters from the New York Times and the, the comment back and forth between us was that at the policy level the the house the senate the white house while they can write grand strategy statements they don't really understand the complexity of what's sitting behind them i i tell people i have three computers sitting on my desk uh, one of them is completely stripped of my personal identification and i use that to go surf the dark net and what you can purchase and acquire and find on the on the dark net is truly amazing. And I, I, I don't think enough people understand what's out there and what's available. Uh, and I, I give the example in in a number of cases where the Chinese, for instance, don't write hacking code in the same 
manner that we would in the Western world. It isn't one person putting together a whole program that's going to run and, and create havoc for people around them. Instead, they write what we would consider in the writing world paragraphs, and then they put them up for sale, and you can purchase the ones you think you need and use those to assemble your own program for creating havoc. And it is not anything that's recognizable uh, in the, the realm that the trained analyst would be looking for at NSA or even at Cybercom. These people who do this, we talked a little bit about Bitcoin, and I think people also, that's that's something that a lot of people don't understand, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. Is that really something for people who are up to no good, or is it? Or are we going to have a future where everyone's going to be invested in something like that? You know, if you're willing to use the Apple purchase system, uh, you are engaged in cyber currency. Uh, you, you just simply think that it's attached to your credit card, but there is an exchange that has to take place across the internet in order for that to work. Bitcoin has been adopted very widely uh, and has been used both for good and bad. Uh, the the spike, I, I warn people, in the value of Bitcoin happened during the Cypriot banking crisis uh, back in 2000, I want to say 2010. You know, don't hold my memory to this one. But what happened was that the Cypriots had decided that they were going to place a tax on anything over a deposit, bank deposits over $100,000, which would, of course, hit the Russian oligarchs who were hiding their money down on Cyprus. And what happened to Bitcoin at that point is that it went from somewhere in the vicinity of about $5 to a Bitcoin to $250 to $1,000 per Bitcoin because the value shot up as they tried to stick their money into Bitcoin and then ship it off of Cyprus without getting caught. Yes, that would suggest there's a nefarious employment for the cryptocurrency, but I, I, I really do suspect we're going to see further adoption of the cryptocurrency mode of transaction. And, and you're seeing that with the banking system deciding to adopt the the. Uh, Sorry, my brain has gone. Blockchain, <laughs> the blockchain like you mentioned approach earlier. to to doing transactions. It is a different way of doing things. It's far more secure than storing thing on one storing things on one server. And so, yes, we're going to see an expansion of that employment. For people who who don't know what the blockchain system is, can you sum it up for us? It, in simple form, the the blockchain is a distributed transaction system where you have multiple users storing this, the data on any transaction. And so you can have in the exchange of any Bitcoin or a percentage of a Bitcoin, 20,000, 30,000, 200,000 people who have stored the information on that transaction. So it's very hard to manipulate the means by which that currency has been moved or to change the way by which that currency has been moved. You can defeat the blockchain, but it means you have to take off 50% of the users at one time. Uh, and if you read Byte, you'll see I can show you how to do that. <laughs> your your book is really a crash course in a lot of that. Is did you set out intending to really just explain it all to everyone, it, like just so they they would have a grasp of it, or did it just naturally evolve that way? I, as a writer, I, you know, I, I come to writing as a former academic and as a member of the intelligence community, and I was an analyst within the intelligence community. And you can't assume that your audience understands all the intricacies of the problem that you're laying out. So if you can explain, at least lay out the initial basics and stir somebody's interest in going to find more, you win. Uh, and that that's my objective in going to work with Byte. Uh, it has been the objective with the, my uh, ISIS trilogy that is just coming out. 
And it's, it's not simply that here's a story for you, but, oh, by the way, you're in danger of learning something. And, and I've found over the years reading good fiction, historical fiction, causes me to learn, even if I didn't want to. I, you know, well, look, I've just picked up some facts that I never would have thought about before. Is cyber the biggest threat facing the U.S. right now in the world? I would argue yes, uh, that the the propensity for someone to use a nuclear weapon is horribly low uh, because the retaliation is so severe. On the other hand, it, your ability to manipulate uh, the environment using cyber is eminently tempting. And I, and I offered a couple of for instances on this one. Uh, the North Koreans' ability to shut down somewhere about 50% of the computers at Sony Studios uh, is a case in point, their ability to steal almost $81 million from the Bangladeshi bank by hacking into their access, the bank's access to the SWIFT system, the, the international transition system, uh, is another case in point. And then you find you know, the, the Russian application of cyber to manipulate public opinion for the 2016 election. So what we're doing is we're watching the information world be changed around us and so it isn't, it isn't kinetic forces that are going to drive us crazy in the long term. It's the informational forces that are going to get to us. What do we as just regular average citizens, can, what can we do to kind of prepare ourselves for, for, for what's coming down the line? I, that's a really good question I, because, you know, the, the, I think the average consumer believes that the, the path to safety is to employ – a Norton firewall or a Karpinski firewall, and there we go. I, I can go tromp everywhere I want. What that doesn't shield you from is disinformation that's being pushed through the web. Uh, it doesn't save you from the things that show up on Facebook that you weren't really expecting to have sent to you in, in a friend's message or anything else. Uh, and it doesn't protect you from the manipulation of the currency markets or manipulation of other governments. And so to protect yourself, the best thing you can do, to be quite honest, is to be well-read um, and to take with a grain of salt the things that show up on your computer. Uh, because just because it's on the Internet doesn't mean it's true. Uh, and I, I have to laugh because my son, who's now in college, will occasionally call me up and say, well, I found this on the web. And I said, no, let's back <laughs> up for a second. This is not necessarily true just because it's on the web. Well, I mean, it, it's crazy. You think that would be so common sense. But, you know, every day there are people being scammed by the Nigerian princes or, <laughs> you know, the whatever's happening. Like, it's just it's very easy to believe it because we kind of we kind of have this cocoon built around the Internet. The the thing I've discovered is that people, and I guess this should, this should be an obvious statement, but people don't have time to run off and bury themselves in all the various issues that are sitting there chasing them down. And so for the average person to, to keep ahead of it, one, you know, my argument is be skeptical. If it shows up in your email and it says, you know, I, I have $100 million available for you, it's probably not. And the other one is the, the constant one that's a, a distribution problem now is the PDF, what looks like a PDF file, saying here's the following shipment that you need to sign on to so that you can receive the bundles that we have paid to sit down at UPS or whoever the, their favorite shipper is that of the day. Uh, it, it's There's a little bit of application of common sense in the – as I said, you know, sort of take a moment, take a deep breath, and reconsider what you're about to open. Um, 
I can't tell you that that will protect everybody because they, the way these guys work is they fire away at 100,000 email accounts with the hope that at least two idiots will open things up. And that usually, statistically, they're right. And so you, you read about the scams because they've fired out at enough people and somebody just doesn't think. Or in the case of your book, 50% of the users, right? <laughs> in this case, you know, the the I won't give away the, the, the story, but what you're doing in this case is you're going after a means of shutting down 50% of the users for a very short period of time, but that's all it takes. Mm -hmm. uh, the consequences, however, if you shut down that much of the web are severe, right? and we don't talk about that anymore. But if you take out that much, you, there are human lives that are at stake at that point. That's really what I took away from your book is we could easily ignore some of the stuff, be like, oh, well, that's not going to affect me. But when you really put it into the, when you look at it from the larger picture, you realize how serious of an issue this really is and how we really need to be like locking down and doing something about it. And and that's what I hope the Trump administration is pushing itself toward. Uh, and again, if I, you know, I, I go back to the national cyber uh, strategy they put together, it is a very different document than what was put together for the Obama administration in that they have a section in it that suggests that they are going to be far more aggressive in both defending and employing cyber tools to go after our adversaries. And that, that makes for a conversation that should make Americans and other Internet users nervous because if we do it, everybody else will feel free to do the same. Well, the new book is Byte. Eric Anderson, thank you for coming by our studios and really talking to us about this. Thank you very much. So picture this. A young wannabe actress wins a national contest that promises to make her a star. No, it's not a new reality show, but rather the real-life story of silent film star Corliss Palmer. I spoke with author Jennifer Ann Redman, who chronicles the rags-to-riches-to-scandal story in her book, Southern Belle to Hollywood Hell. Corliss Palmer is someone I'd never heard about before. Why don't you tell us a little bit first about who she was? Corliss Palmer is someone that nobody's heard of. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to write about her. She was born in Macon, Georgia, and she grew up knowing she was pretty. And as a lark, she decided to enter a contest. It was called the Fame and Fortune Contest for a movie magazine. And she wound up winning it. Kind of, You have to read the book to see how she wound up winning it, but a surprise to everybody, she wound up winning it. Well, why don't you tell me why you find her story so fascinating? In researching my previous book, I kept on coming across her photos and articles and, and things in Motion Picture Magazine, which was a leading fan magazine at the time. And I couldn't understand why I kept on seeing so many things about her when she really wasn't a movie star. Like, why would she keep on coming up? And it turned out that it was because she wound up winning the Fame and Fortune contest and catching the eye of the publisher of Motion Picture Magazine, Eugene Brewster. And Eugene's somebody that could probably have a book written about him himself. He was everything. I mean, he was married four times. He was a lawyer, a writer, a painter. I mean, you name it, he tried it. And one of his projects was that he thought he was going to kind of have a muse. He liked her. He liked the way she looked. And he thought that he could create a movie star out of her. Never mind that she really didn't have any movie talent. As he even said later about her, she couldn't memorize lines. She couldn't do anything. But he, for whatever reason, he thought this was going to be his meal ticket. And, you know, he tried as best as he could to make her into a superstar. And it kind of backfired. Right. They ended up having this scandalous affair, right? 
Exactly. They had an affair and it actually wound up hurting her more because, again, I get further into it in the book, but they tried to kind of keep it secret. And as you know, things like that always come out and it wound up blacklisting her. So even she barely got started as a movie star. She was already blacklisted. Is it an indication of the time that she lived in that she's remembered for this affair and not any of the films that she made? You know, it's an indication of her time, but to be honest, it's kind of like today's times also, because unfortunately, if you're famous, you can be famous for just being infamous, as it were. And, you know, I think people just like the salacious, and it doesn't matter what time period this would have happened in, I think she would have wound up being on the gossip pages for this. You can't help but think, too, about the whole Me Too era. Was she just a victim of this guy who thought that this was his meal ticket to being a big name in Hollywood? I absolutely thought about her as far as Me Too. I wouldn't call her a victim because there were times, especially when I spoke to some of her relatives, that Corliss knew exactly what was going on and kind of courted it. But I definitely see her being used as a pawn and she was kind of she became a plaything for this guy for Brewster. And so I can definitely see her being a victim of that. You know, her story reminds me too a little bit about uh, of Evelyn Nesbitt and everything she went through just like 20 something years earlier. Yes, absolutely. And uh, Paula Uraburu, who wrote the book about Evelyn Nesbitt, American Eve, we actually discussed that, that you can see a definite parallel. There's also a parallel, too. If you look at it, it, it's vague, but a Citizen Kane type one, because Bruce thought he could mold her into a star. And it's the same idea if you look back at Citizen Kane, kind of, you know, somebody without any talent, how far can they get just because they're somebody's plaything, somebody's mistress. Are there lessons to be learned from her story? The main thing that I always say is be careful what you wish for. Uh, be be prepared. No, you know, keep both eyes open. You hear so many stories about women that went into the business and they didn't think they were going to get successful and then they wound up hitting the top. But this is what happened to more of them. This is the unfortunate downslide that happens when you jump into looking for fame and, you know, you you don't think before you leap. You obviously got to know her really well in researching this book and writing it. Is there a way that you think she deserves to be remembered? Actually, there was a way that I wanted her to be remembered that was quite successful. Um, I mentioned in the in the book that her grave was unmarked. And when I had mentioned this to a friend of mine who also deals with silent film and silent movies, both of us couldn't stand for that. So we started a Kickstarter campaign. And I'm happy to say that just last week, we were able to place a headstone for her. So now her grave is marked, and it's proper that she will be remembered. And I mean, aside from the headstone, I just think that she deserves to be remembered in general. I mean, she really did try her best, even though she maybe didn't have the chops for it. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in silent film and this era in particular. It kind of happened by accident. I was researching something one day, and I came across a picture of Theda Barra, and she was a well-known silent vamp. You probably know her face without knowing her name. She had, like, the very heavily lined eyes and, you know, the kind of what you think of when you think of somebody that's vampy. And she just fascinated me, so I started looking into who she was and what she did, and little by little I wound up discovering this whole other Hollywood that I had never seen before. It really captured me because I had always thought of silent films as kind of these creaky things that, you know, oh, they're funny. You see Charlie Chaplin and stuff in these really sped up films and everyone makes fun of them as being antiquated. But the more you learn about them, the more you, real they were, you learn they were a real art form 
And they're definitely worth watching even today. You mentioned, you know, being able to finally get Corliss's grave marked. Is that something that permeates silent film where a lot of the stars have been forgotten as time has gone by? Absolutely. There's a number. As a matter of fact, my friend Jessica Wall, who helped me get the headstone placed, she has a list of people who were, I mean, not just actors, they were superstars and their graves because unfortunately they fell on hard times later on. They didn't have the money or they were forgotten. A lot of them died in the motion picture country house and they just lost to time. So I believe that we need to tell their stories, no matter how obscure or minor they are. Everybody deserves to have their story told. So if people are interested, besides reading the books that you've written about this time period, what's a good resource for people to kind of start their own research? Uh, The best book you can get is called The Parades Gone By by Kevin Brownlow. He wrote it several years ago, but to this day, it remains kind of the Bible for silent film research. He went and spoke to the people that worked in the film, not just actors, but directors, cameramen, you name it. It will give you a perfect baseline, and then you can go and investigate the people that he speaks about, but that would definitely be it. So your latest book is Southern Belle to Hollywood Hell. Great title, by the way. (laughs) Thank you so much. Jennifer Ann Remen, thanks for, you know, taking some time and talking to us about a subject that I don't think a lot of people know about, but may want to research more into now after they hear this interview. You know, I hope people do because it's very interesting and there are a lot of parallels to today. I mean, even everyone talks about people like the Kardashians being a brand. I mean, they tried to make a brand out of Corliss. You can see the the prototype being laid down right then, a hundred years ago. We never learn from history, do we? Nope, never do. (laughs) (laughs) And that's where we close the book on this week's podcast. Next time around, we chat about the great American read on PBS with host Meredith Vieira. I know, I can't wait for next week either. If you want a sneak peek of what we're doing before we're doing it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books.